This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Scott Bertram, and with me is Andrew Fink, State Representative for the 58th District, that's Branch, and Hillsdale Counties. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, last time we talked, we, we previewed somewhat the State of the State Address from Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Now we get to review the State of the State Address from Governor Gretchen Whitmer. So, what did you think? Well, it's interesting to hear... Uh, uh, Democratic politicians spend a third of the speech talking about cutting taxes. Um, sometimes it sort of sounded like she was speaking this lang- as a second language, but um, it's uh, it's an election year, and so things are a little bit different uh, from from her first state of the state. Uh, you and I were talking before coming on the air here. the the big The big highlight of that one was that she wanted to impose a forty five cent gas tax uh-huh. uh, increase, which we can talk about it in the context of how our economy is doing uh, too. But but yeah, so it's quite a different tone. And, and year one, uh, when she's just come out of an election, let's raise taxes. And year four, when she's heading towards one, let's cut taxes. In terms of the specific proposals, um, uh, on the tax side of things, she talked about what's called the pension tax. It's really just a tax on incomes that are pensions, but and, and it's not all pensions. It's certainly not all senior incomes or all retirement incomes. So it doesn't really address the overall issue um, as well as I think it probably could. I mean, I'm not, I'm not prejudging the, you know, the exact proposal that I haven't seen. Uh, but I, but I just would say that uh, both that and then the earned income tax credit that she wants to expand, you know, both of these issues need to be part of the conversation on tax reform that needs to go much deeper and much be much broader. Uh, the, the earned income tax credit proposal at least has the virtue of affecting families that are working now, and so they're the backbone of today's economy and raising you know, the generation that will be tomorrow's economy. So it at least has that uh, going for it. Uh, but the the overall tax uh, system in our state, you know, we're we're basically a middle of the road tax state in terms of overall tax burden. But when your your state is not competitive for uh, kind of a, the 21st century economy, that's just not good enough. So the the states that are growing have uh, tax rates lower than ours. And, of course, in some famous cases, Tennessee, Texas, Florida, no state income tax at all mm-hmm. uh, on individuals. You know, That's the kind of aggression that I think Michigan's going to have to adopt if we're going to be competitive. As it is, our economic heyday was you know, 50 to 100 years ago in the wake of the uh, uh, maybe even 50 to 120 years ago. Uh, and and uh, we're going to have to take some more aggressive steps to be competitive in the in the you know, rest of the 21st century and going forward because our, our regulatory state or regulatory, uh, system, our, our tax regime, you know, both of these things are kind of anachronistic. They're 20th century, uh, they're 20th century schemes that are going to need much more, um, aggressive and, uh, and probably risk-taking reform. Governor's ideas, uh, largely targeted, uh, the pension idea, uh, the idea for further uh, tax credits for electric vehicle purchases, which largely would benefit more wealthy Michiganders. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know that State Senator Mike Shirky, the Senate Majority Leader, has talked more about a broad-based, uh, essentially, income tax reduction for all Michigan residents. Is that the sort of thing that also would have some enthusiasm in the House? I would think so. I mean, I can't speak for all 55 of my of my peers right now on the Republican side. Uh, but, uh, and, and we should be back up to 58 by, uh, the end of May. Um, you know, the, the, it's difficult for, it's difficult to, to put the opportunity to cut taxes and, and keep money in the hands of the people who've earned it, um, and, and turn away from that. So I, I'd be, I'd be optimistic that, that if the, uh, 
as long as the, the majority stays uh, as large as, as it is, and I think we'll grow back to a six-vote majority, that we should be fine uh, for moving that legislation. I have no, I, I, I don't know whether you've seen if the governor's commented on it. I mean, I wouldn't be terribly optimistic about her signing a broad-based tax reform like that. Uh, but again, I mean, if we're not going to take bold moves, if we're not going to not going to make bold moves, then we're going to continue to just slip farther and farther behind. Michigan lost, depending on which study you look at, either the sixth most most or the tenth most people to other states in 2020 uh, or 2021. We had more deaths than births, I think, for the first time in recorded history, and. Uh, we have the second highest percentage of native-born population in the country. The only state with more people who live there who were born there is Louisiana. And obviously Louisiana is a different kind of a place in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Uh, but they also experienced you know, a massive hurricane in 2005 that devastated their, ma- their only major city, from which they've really not fully recovered. I mean, uh, that was a, a, an incredible setback. We don't have a hurricane to point the finger at. We've just been uh, kind of a... Uh, a a slow slide towards mediocrity for decades. State Representative Andrew Fink with us here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. The governor also talking about spending money for education funding, both for per-pupil amounts for schools across uh, the state and also retention bonuses for for teachers. I'm seeing a proposal uh, just today as we speak uh, about uh, $3 billion for frontline workers across the state. Uh, I know those are proposals you probably haven't seen a whole lot of yet, but are, are those appropriate expenditures when we when we discuss our sort of one-time surplus that we're looking at for 2022? Yeah, I, th- I think I said maybe, maybe with you a couple weeks ago, Scott, that I've got school districts that tell me they haven't quite figured out how they're going to spend all the money that they've been appropriated directly from the federal government to this point. Uh, and we, we already had in the 2021 fiscal year budget record funding for public schools. And she's saying she, this is going to be the largest single year increase percentage increase in like more than 20 years. And that's over the highest budget we've ever had. So without seeing the details, I I will just say like my instinct is to say, what's really going on here? Do we actually need all of this additional money? Um, obviously, you know, you can't have a school without it being funded. Our schools, if we're, if the public's, if the public is going to own, run, maintain these schools, they should be good. Uh, but it's not clear to me that money is the thing that stands in between, uh, our, our, our students and the best age educational opportunities. You know, one thing that I think creates more, uh, more problems than a lack of funding is the way that the teachers unions expect to control the curriculum over and above the interests of the school board, uh, the elected representatives of the people who are supposed to be controlling the public schools, and over and above the input of the parents themselves. Obviously, we want the teachers to teach uh, to the best of their ability, but that doesn't mean that it's their job to supersede those other important parts of the educational system, beginning with parents who obviously have a fundamental right and a fundamental interest in the education that their students are going to receive. And so when, when we look at the idea that we need to do retention bonuses and, and what have you, I don't, I don't really object to that as a, a, at the highest level of abstraction. I mean, it's not, it's not crazy to me to say, well, maybe we should consider paying teachers more, but the question would be why. If, if we're going to pay teachers more because they deserve it in some sense because they are, uh, are you know, such important bulwarks of our society. Well, there's a lot of other uh, bulwarks of our society uh, that we've neglected at least uh, at least as much. Um, firefighters, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, Hillsdale, I think we only have three full-time firefighters. You know, is that is that sufficient? I don't know, but but I'd like to talk about that if we're going to talk about other public servants who deserve to ha- to have a, a, a funding increase or a pay increase. But the real the real attraction, I think, in in talking about paying teachers more would be paying teachers more who uh, who kind of earn more, who who would deserve more. And that's not uh, that's not to say that there aren't complications in looking at. Uh, you know, student performance and teacher performance. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that it's linear. And I think in some cases, kind of the conservative education reform movement has um, maybe uh, focused a little too much on high stakes testing and, and thought that that uh, reflects directly on teachers. And, and it's it. So I'm willing to accept that it's a little more complicated than that. But at the same time, if the schools are, are going to be asking for more money or are going to be expecting more money, and of course, by the schools, again, we primarily mean the teachers unions in this case. Uh, we've got to have a clear uh, explanation of what exactly the value to the community of the additional dollars is going to be. Um, and if it's going to be additional conflict between schools and parents, if it's going to be uh, continually slipping uh, scores in, in uh, so many school districts around the state, then I'm not sure that that's really going to make a lot of sense. So it's, it's an inter- I mean, it's a prudential question, how much money do the schools need? And the assumptions that I think the governor uh, makes when she just declares that we need to give them record record a record funding increase over already record funding. I, I think those are unproven assumptions, and, and I'm going to have to see a little more. State Representative Andrew Fink with us here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. There was a bill that passed with, uh, not unanimous, but, but close to it, support in the House this past week, uh, apportioning $185 million, called small business relief, I guess, but targeting entertainment venues, uh, fitness venues, those places that were harmed and felt real harm from the shutdown back in uh, most of 2020. Uh, what, what kind of relief is included here for some of those businesses? Well, the main thing is I, um, in most of these packages has been to refund fees or taxes that they paid uh, during time periods in which they were not allowed to actually operate their business. So uh, the the funding, I think you're talking about house bills at 5524. Do you have that? Yeah, I think that's what it is. It essentially funds a package of bills that I was on uh, like last year, uh, which related to restaurants and all kinds of places that had um, uh, that are, are either licensed or pay taxes or pay for certain fees or whatever. Uh, and then we're not allowed to actually get the benefit. You know, pr- presumably when you pay a, you know, whatever, a food safety license fee, it's in order to be given the right to use the food safety license for the year. Mm-hmm. And so what happened to a restaurant instead last year was, uh, or in the last in the last two years combined, uh, you know, you pay for, say you pay, pay a license fee on March 1st of 2020. Well, if you were a restaurant or a gym or a bunch of these other places, you know, you were probably only open about half that time, uh, according to the state's emergency orders, the governor's emergency orders. Uh, and yet the the governor repeatedly has vetoed funding, similar funding to put money back into the hands of these small business owners, which ultimately means the people who work at these small businesses, uh, it really for no reason that, that I've ever seen articulated. So the idea here is if you've got a gym, like my friend Matt Young owns uh, CrossFit Timoro here in Hillsdale, you know, he, he and his crew uh, closed the gym early in the, the pandemic 
I doubt that that many people would have been in there in the middle of March of 2020 anyway, uh, but but did everything they could to kind of continue to stay in touch with their with the people who went to their gym and, and uh, coaching them up all throughout the, the time period. But again, nobody nobody was going to refund him for the taxes he had paid or, mm-hmm. or, or, or whatever it was. Um, and so this is kind of a way to right the wrong of the government demanding uh, payment and then not allowing you to use the benefit of that payment. Uh, uh, that never made any sense, and so I'm, I'm glad that finally we kind of have a deal to, to move that ball forward a little bit. We uh, we talked a little bit earlier in our conversation about uh, the governor's proposal for a gas tax hike from, I guess, two years ago, three years ago, her first year in office, first state of the state address. Uh, we see gas prices uh, still over $3 a gallon throughout the states. Uh, just this morning, what, 335 here locally in Hillsdale. Usually in the winter months, we see prices go down, they increase in the summer. The president released some oil from the Strategic Oil Reserve in an attempt to uh, drive prices down. That does not seem to have made a difference. When we look at, uh, at the, the costs for Michigan residents, certainly gas prices are at the top of the list, near the top of the list, and things that people are paying at a daily, weekly basis. There's not much we can do as a state to affect gas prices, I understand. But I, I guess my point here is understanding that when we talk about gas tax hikes, uh, we have to remember that gas is not a static uh, commodity, and there will be rises and falls. So if yeah. we had that, if, we, if if the governor got her way, we're looking at four dollar gallon gas right now across the state of Michigan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and if you got a, uh, you know, what, what what's an average tank these days? Probably like if if you got a sedan, like fourteen to eighteen gallons. If you got an SUV, more like eighteen to twenty five gallons, some, something like that. Uh, so you would really notice it. Uh, as you as you filled up, um, yeah. I mean, our our we do have it. So there's a state gas tax, which uh, is more or less directly a a user fee for for roads. And then there's also the normal state sales tax imposed on the gas, and uh, and that means that all the entities that typically benefit from sales taxes also have an interest in keeping that tax uh, on on the pump. So that's I mean that's an issue where the schools look at at a funding decrease or mm-hmm. I mean anybody else. Uh, who who thinks of tax dollars as as money that they expect to have some influence over? So it, it's not as though the state couldn't do some things to adjust the the burden. But obviously, like when when you're the legislature and you want to change the tax law, you need the governor to sign it. And our governor's last idea about this was to make it much much worse. So I don't I I'll I'm, this is one where I'll just say like it's not like I know Governor Whitmer particularly well. In fact, I don't think I've ever met her in person. Um, if I have, I don't I don't remember doing that. But uh, uh, I just don't think this is one where there's going to be a, a super productive conversation between the legislature uh, and and the governor if we're going to talk about finding a way to to reduce gas taxes or the taxes that you do pay at the pump. The other thing about it is, like you know, in general, if you're going to do taxes, it's preferred. Uh, I prefer to have taxes that relate to the expense that the state is trying to cover. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind the notion compared with other forms of taxes of a sales tax or, you know, a tax on the sale of gasoline that funds roads. Um, there's a, co- a coherence to that, that, that lacks in a lot of our other, you know, tax, uh, tax schemes. Um, so it's not as though in, in, uh, kind of in theory or in, in, yeah, in, in the classroom setting, like this is where you would start. But the, but the odd thing that I, I think you just got at is we tax in Michigan uh, and, and the federal taxes too tax on the, um, the amount of gas not the cost of the gas, yeah. right? So a normal sales, including the 6% sales tax on our gasoline, a normal sales tax is relative to the price. And then with the gas tax, we make it 
tied to the volume. And I'm sure that undoing that, I mean, I'm not, uh, if we ask one of our economics professors here, they could probably begin to explain what it would take to un, kind of untie that knot, you know, of of this kind of odd circumstance where we're taxing the, the, the you know, I mean, honestly, like even your property taxes or a transfer tax on, this, on the, the sale of your home, like all these things have some relation to the value of mm-hmm. the good. And in this case, it's just the amount of the good. It's 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 a it's kind of an odd thing, and it does make it less responsive to uh, to the market than a normal sales tax would be. And I'm sure that that's part of why it's difficult for the government to really know what's going on. You know, so I mean, typically you'd expect you release additional volume uh, into the market, and that would drive the prices down. But when the taxes are a factor in the price themselves, and that doesn't change uh, based on the uh, amount available. You know, it's just the amount that you actually use. Um, it uh, it it would make it a little bit trickier to know what's going to happen when you when you add supply to the market. So it is an odd system, and and it probably could use some reform. But I'll just say um, let's let's see how things go in November and talk about it after that because I don't think we're going to get anywhere in Michigan this year. Speaking of uh, November, the we talked last time about the redistricting lawsuit and and whether or not these these new maps were sort of set, finalized. No, of course, we have this, this pending lawsuit. But since the last time we talked, that lawsuit has been dismissed. So I guess uh, the question uh, is now raised again. Are, are we set? Is this the end of the road for challenges to the redistricting map for the state of Michigan? There is another lawsuit already out there in federal court. I think it's in the Western District of Michigan. Um, and the the likelihood that there's continued litigation, I just expect, I mean, it's it's just too controversial and too kind of rich an area for litigation. Although I, I guess I would say that I think um, one of, you know, there's everybody's got plenty of Supreme Court cases to complain about, and I'm uh, absolutely in that number. Uh, but a few years ago, uh, maybe 20, well, it might have been actually the summer 2820 that they released this opinion that essentially took the Supreme Court or the federal courts out of um, uh, partisan gerrymandering, uh, kind of you know double checking. Where mm-hmm. they essentially said if your if your legislature is of one party or the other, and, and that litigation involved both Republican and Democratic states, the courts are not going to kind of check to see how fair their maps are from a partisan standpoint. There are other things that you can still do federal litigation over. But uh, not strictly that one, and so it kind that's that's an interesting wrinkle here. But then again, this was a notionally nonpartisan organization that did these maps in the first place, and so there's some litigation. In fact, I said that, I said there was this piece in in the Western District. I think there's also a piece in the Eastern District alleging that the map for for my chamber uh, is unconstitutionally biased towards Republicans. And so I mean, I think that that's a piece that of litigation that would have a, quite an uphill battle. For the reasons I just said, it's difficult to bring the, more difficult to bring those cases now than ever. And Republicans didn't make the map, so I, I, where's the bias coming? <laughs> right. I mean, but uh, with that said, I mean, there's going to be continued litigation. But the bottom, I think, the takeaway for all of us is at least those of us who are kind of doing the work in politics is we don't have an alternative to guess at anyway. So just you know, charge forward with the maps we have and and do your best. And as I always point out, in my case, I. I I genuinely am. I think the luckiest member of the Michigan legislature. My district has 100% of its old territory plus the city of Hudson. Uh, my, or I should say, the, the district that I'm running to mm-hmm. uh, to take over next year. So uh, I don't have anything to complain about in my own life. But even if I did, there'd be nothing to do except just you know get used to it and charge ahead. Uh, State Representative Andrew Fink from the uh, 58th district. Uh, final question: uh, Jim Harbaugh 
is not taking, was not offered perhaps, the uh, job of head coach of the Minnesota Vikings of the NFL. So he says he's back in Ann Arbor, and he says it's not going to be an annual thing. He's there as long as the school wants him to coach the Wolverine football team. Is it a good thing for the University of Michigan? Well, I think it's a good thing uh, to not have it happen every year. And, it, and you know, there's been there's been some kind of NFL rumor basically after every season that, that Harbaugh has been there. And obviously he's, he's been, if anything, a more successful NFL coach than a, a college coach, I guess at this point, losing a Super Bowl and losing in the playoff are, are pretty equivalent, but wasn't the record like, like 44 and 19. And he has the uh, fourth or fifth best winning percentage of all time in the NFL. Yeah. So I can understand why an NFL team would, would be interested in him. And you, I mean, I guess you can kind of play psychological games and wonder whether, the the weird things that make him himself would generally play better in the NFL, where presumably like these all these guys just think about football all the time. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe that would work better. But at, at the end of the day, he's he's a good he's a good football coach, and as a you know working in Lansing, that's probably an eighty percent Spartan environment, and so I get a lot of questions about how happy or unhappy I am with. Uh, 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 Coach Harbaugh. Nobody ever asked me how things are going with Coach Otterman, by the way. He's got things <laughs> locked down down here. But uh, uh, you know, when, and when they ask me that, I mean, I always just say, compared to what? I mean, this is Thomas Sowell, right? right? Yeah. What, compared to what? Who's going to be the next? Is John Harbaugh going to be the next coach? Well, I would actually probably take that deal right now, you know, or at least I would, I would be fine with it. But unless you've got another coach who I believe is, um, is is going to go out there and win football games, I, I'm not looking for an experiment uh, with my football teams. So. Um, I'm more worried about the Lions than I am the the Wolverines. State Representative Andrew Fink, 58th District Branch in Hillsdale County. So if people need to get a hold of you or the office, what's the best way? Uh, go to repfink.com. State Representative Andrew Fink, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thank you, Scott. More of our interviews and conversations on our SoundCloud page. Go to soundcloud.com. Search for WRFH Radio Free Hillsdale. And I'm Scott Bertram on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.